This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. A little bit later on, we're going to check in with the Toledo Symphony's music director, Elaine Trudell. He'll be calling in. But joining me today, right now in the studio, are the TSO's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, and principal second violin and artistic administrator, Merwin Sue. Now, we also have a special return guest. That would be Mickey Emsch. <laughs> Welcome, Mickey. Glad to have you back. Last time you were here, it was, what, like our Thanksgiving Handel's Messiah show, yes. is that right? Yep, doing a little uh, dinner prep plans. Yeah. <laughs> so how did that turn out for you? How were the holidays? It was great. You know, we got to sing a great show, and um, then I made, I learned about vegan Thanksgiving. It was fantastic. Vegan Thanksgiving. Those mm-hmm. two words seem like they should not go together, I guess. <laughs> Unless you're a vegan, of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But what was the mainstay then? If you didn't have turkey, what'd you have? It was really beautiful um, stuffed squash with a bunch of, like, there were different grains involved that I don't usually have, like, I don't know, uh, lentils and quinoa. Yeah, well, that makes everybody shaking their head, yes, except for Zach. No, I'm over here thinking that doesn't sound Turkish at all. Yeah, Yeah. I I agree, definitely. Well, the reason that Mickey is here is for a very specific reason. You are the vocal soloist for this Sunday's chamber music program. It's happening at the Toledo Club The Juliet Letters, and we're going to hear Mickey singing selections from Elvis Costello's Juliet Letters. That's with string quartet. There's also a little ditty by Beethoven and a brass trio by Elizabeth Raum on the concert. And we're going to get to all of that. But first, I have a quiz. Oh, my gosh. So early. Yeah. This is actually uh, replacing the story. So Mickey told us her story last time. What we're doing right now... Do we get to listen to it in, like, chipmunk high speed? Like, you did the... Megan. Megan Megan, Amos. That's right. Yeah. No, we're going straight for the jugular with this one. Awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm not even giving you choices. We have to see if you remember... Yes, Zach, you have oh, your hand sorry. raised. Yeah, I know it's not easy to do that on the radio, but um, d- does this mean that we'll have a second quiz in the normal quiz slot if yeah. quiz one is <laughs> meant to be the story slot? Yes, indeed. Okay. all right. Yay! Oh, no, no, I, I, I do not agree with that cheering crowd. Stand down, okay. gentlemen. Let's move on. All right. So sorry. this is a Mickey story quiz. I'm going to ask oh. you questions about Mickey's story. And they could be questions just about Mickey, right? Now, Mickey, you can't answer these since you probably know the answers. She can't handle the truth. But let me bring up, let me bring up your music that we uh, had last time. Okay. Your story music. So this should theoretically help us yeah, by it's a, creating a... It's a, a mnemonic a, bridge. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Exactly. To remind you of the Lifetime movie of my <laughs> Okay. So I'm going to go through all of these. Well, actually... Let's answer them. Yeah, I'm going to go through all... You want to answer them as we go along? Because you're not giving us choices, right? All right, number one. What state is Mickey from? Anybody know? Missouri. Missouri is... Correct. Very good. Merwin, we're off to a good start. Okay, true or false? She worked. (laughs) (laughs) You're right, Zach. (laughs) Wait. It actually was false. Would you like to hear the clue? 
<laughs> okay, Mickey works with the Coral Arts Alliance of Louisiana. That is false. She worked with the Columbia Coral Alliance of Missouri. Went to the University of Missouri. Also went to Louisiana State University. So the answer is false. So it's one each. One for Merwin, one for Zach. Okay, what school did, Mer- did Merwin, did Mickey McGill. study at for her doctorate in contemporary music? BG what school Bowling was Green, yeah. Okay, I'm going to give it to you both. Yay! Bowling Green State University. Now, this is a little bit harder. It gets a little harder now. What instrument did Mickey play before she was a singer? Oh. Well, she played a kazoo. I remember seeing a picture of that. That is true. That is true. See, I got it from the, from yeah, the horse's but, mouth. Okay, the, this is an instrument that she kept leaving at school, and her mother suggested she become a singer instead. Is a, I think she left her piano. At, no, she left her violin. Yay! All right, Zach, that's correct. <laughs> Only took a few guesses to get well, there. The I think violin. I was still correct on kazoo, but okay. I feel like those will like, agree to disagree. I still Foul play balls, the kazoo, right? though. I know you do. Yeah, yeah but your mom didn't take it away from you. No. But you're ahead, Zach, by one. Oh, no, this is uncomfortable. So no complaints. I'm right? not complaining. Her high school voice teacher, Mickey's high school voice teacher, also had a lot of what at home? Patience. <laughs> Would that be as in you're willing to wait or is well, it you're a Mickey's doctor? Well, it's teacher, I feel like. You know, uh, okay. How about cats? I'm going to go with cats. Very close. Dogs. Yay! Zach is ahead by two. That's amazing. <laughs> Lots of dogs. I love that unfiltered reaction. There. <laughs> do, you, do you know what kind of? Do you know what kind of dogs they were? Uh, I Just, believe they were poodles. Extra. No, they were Shih Tzus. No, they were uh, uh, Pomeranian cannonballs. No, we don't have time for all of this. They were Lhasa Apsos. Uh, Close with Shih Tzu. That was my yes. next guess. Yeah. What was Mickey's first job in high school? Oh, training Lhasa Apsos. <laughs> that was her mother. That's true. <laughs> training her mother. Sorry, I got it wrong. It's okay. You're two ahead. You're still going to be ahead no matter what Merwin says. I'll go with newspaper delivery. <laughs> no, she was a... You want me to tell you? Sure. Yeah. She was a florist. That was your first? I was an oh, assistant. Yeah. I filled I the water this. tubes and I did oh. all the things. Assistant I mean, florist. I did know you were in the floral arts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't that nice. a floral arts building at BG2? Yeah, I think so. It's right next to... Clots. Uh, yep. Yes, okay. The School of Floral Arts. And finally, where did Mickey famously intern as a production assistant? Right here. <laughs> In that chair right there where you're sitting in front yeah, of the mic? that's it. Yes, that's exactly. It, yeah. At WGTE. Well, I am very happy to report that the winner of our quiz is... Zach! Yay! Pigs are flying, and I think the transmitter is going to go out any second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's happened before that Once, you won a quiz. Once, yeah, maybe twice. I, I really do say that I think Paula Poundstone has won Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me about as many times as I've won her quiz. <laughs> She's been in this, this very room, as a matter of fact. So Failing at a quiz, I bet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the concert is happening on Sunday. It's January 29th, 7 p.m. at the Toledo Club, music of Beethoven and Raum and Elvis Costello, which Mickey is singing in. Uh, let's talk about the Juliet Letters. This is a studio album. It came out in the early 90s with the Brodsky String Quartet. Um, what precipitated Mickey singing it? What precipitated it being included on the program? Who wants to 
to take the lead here? Well, it actually started because we were programming a Masterworks um, concert that opened our season that also featured uh, Romeo and Romeo and Juliet, and occasionally because we do have you know people on our chamber series who love to attend the Masterworks and vice versa that. You know, sometimes it's interesting to kind of shine an other type of light on a similar topic. And so we were thinking about doing a Romeo and Juliet themed um, chamber concert pretty early in the process. Mm-hmm. And um, this particular song cycle is really something that I've been enamored with since, I don't know, my teenage years. It was something I, I just, I've loved and. It's just, it's really great because, I mean, for shorthand reasons, we say this is Elvis Costello's Juliet Letters, but he really wrote this as this collaborative process. And in a a weird way, it's much closer to how rock bands write songs together. Mm. Like, you know, maybe one person is the main lyricist for a particular song or one person brings the main theme, but everybody is putting together their ideas. And so there's something that felt very... I don't know, it feels very heterogeneous as opposed to like, it's not just the work of one mind. You you hear all of these different influences and different styles and the texts are just crazy different. (laughs) And it's so much fun and it's something that kind of tests a different part of your, your artistic mind because it's not just, oh, we need to get into the head of one person Mm or one artist and i'm sure you would probably can expand on that a little yeah mickey tell us first you know the conceit of juliet letters and what it's about and this text that that merwin mentioned absolutely so uh as merwin said it's collaborative in how it was conceived um not all of the text is by one person but um it was initially inspired from seeing a newspaper clipping right um that the uh professor in verona had received letters uh or found letters that were addressed to Juliet. And it is nice in the sense of many uh, song cycles of the 20th and 19th century that have, you know, oscillating perspectives, but can still um, speak to this idea of disillusionment from different folks' perspectives and um, really intimate, gorgeous pieces. Yeah. Can I can I ask a clarifying question? Because I'm, I'm not clear if that uh, Verona professor, are these reported um, letters to a real Juliet or to a um, fictional Juliet inspired by the play? Because I know that that's what Elvis Costello mm-hmm. and the Brod- Brodsky folks created. But what was the source that they were responding to? Were they like old letters or are they new letters? That the folks were responding to or, or like the the mm-hmm. actual lyrics of this piece? Oh, I know that the lyrics for this piece came from Elvis Costello and the Brodsky members, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. But what was the previous iteration? Were they, I just knew uh, that there was a newspaper clipping and they said, oh, isn't yeah. that a fun concept? It is the fact that like people <laughs> still to we're, this day were writing to Juliet. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. In the All same right. way that maybe people write to Santa Claus. You I know, see. Like, uh-huh. like they were, they're, they're so... Does Juliet bring presents? <laughs> not certainly not in this. <laughs> not, not the kind that you want in your stocking. Drink this, little boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like the conceit, I guess, yeah. of this, the 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 kind of the thematic backbone of it is 
like imagine if you were opening Juliet's mailbox. Yep. Mm-hmm. What but, are the things that could be in that mailbox sure. today? Yeah. And did, has this been going on for a long time? Like have people been writing letters to Juliet since Shakespeare's time or is this a more modern concept? I think the newspaper clipping they were responding to was kind of marveling at the fact that this was still going on I but i don't know exactly when this first started does that make sense yeah. so it's like i'm not sure if this is something that's been going on since the 16 17 1800s yeah. but i know that it's still going on and so it was not just like oh this particular day there were yeah. some letters this it, it was treated like an ongoing phenomenon yeah so i'd love part, to be the postmaster yeah. in verona and have to like <laughs> divide you, you know here's two the piles stack. one for santa one for juliet well, right. don't, don't forget romeo he has far oh, fewer romeo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wherefore because, art thou exactly. romeo yeah, yeah, yeah right. find a return address yeah you can't get mail <laughs> well when i was a kid i used to think juliet was saying where are you you know where right. where the heck are it's you like, I'm, why, I'm right? waiting it, it's <laughs> Why are you Romeo? Yeah. Wherefore? Yeah. Yeah. The things you learn on this podcast. <laughs> the more you know. Yes. Mickey, talk a little bit about the, the music <laughs> because you have a sort of a pedigree in modern music and music composed in the 20th and 21st centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, can folks who, you know, enjoy Beethoven, which is also on this program, also enjoy the Juliet letters? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is um, something, as Merwin was saying, uh, idiomatic about the collaborative writing. But um, if you like folks lead, you'll love Elvis Costello, you know. Folks lead. <laughs> we, <laughs> we should Bromsey. let people know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Those, those German song cycles, <laughs> right? I would say that uh, music is more eclectic than mm-hmm. a typical song cycle would be. I think that there's certain pieces that sound a little bit like Shostakovich slow mm-hmm. movements. There's pieces that very much remind me of middle Beatles, mm-hmm. um, like really? era stuff. Then there's pieces that there's there's quick waltzes. Mm-hmm. There's there's patter songs almost that feel like Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, mm-hmm. from the from a art song perspective too, or just any kind of. Um, Kurt Vile and like yeah. the my favorite bits about the like irreverent Poulenc songs, you know, anything that has yeah. a little grit and can yeah. um, lend itself to different um, scales of stages too. Yeah. What, what was the most challenging aspect for you learning these roles, learning these uh, the letters? I think it is easy for folks, especially when you've been in teaching spaces, to decide what crossover vocal style needs to be and something that is and has been described as just music to be con- like it, it is a collaborative space. It's not necessarily musical theater. It's not necessarily in an operatic space um, to come to something and remove all of your previous uh, notions of what one should sound like and to just be conversational with the players too, because so much of it is back and forth with the strings. It's yeah. really fun. <laughs> are, are you playing in this one? I am. Merwin? Yeah. yeah. So what's been your experience? I mean, it's unusual that you have like, you know, a, a, a pop rock artist, even somebody who kind of ventures, blurs the boundaries, uh, working with a string quartet, mm-hmm. because that's like one of the most challenging, really, <laughs> forms of musical expression there yeah. are. Uh, what's the experience for you playing the music? Have you discovered anything? Were you, yeah. yeah. One thing that I really enjoy about this particular um this cycle and this collaboration is how willing they are 
to like and I'm including the Brodsky Quartet along with Elvis Costello as kind of like the co-creators of this, how willing they are to kind of find unusual combinations and make them kind of exist together. So there's a lot of times where I'll be playing a line exactly in the same register as Mickey mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're having to really decide okay, am I going to try to fit into this or am I going to kind of put this little kind of metal core through that mm-hmm. vo- that voice and how you play it, it, it almost creates a new instrument that's like, yeah. you know, like two-thirds voice and one-third strings, you know, like, <laughs> and then there's, um, they're very willing to explore register differences. So mm-hmm. the viola plays a lot of things that are very much violin range, um, very high, um, just to create those special effects. There's, um, there's these really interestingly notated siren sort of effects mm-hmm. that that are that are really fun and tricky to try try to do. And so, so I think that they they decided. Um, to to really it's such an open minded um, piece, and so there, I, I can imagine that the the writing of this was incredibly mm-hmm. fun mm-hmm. and just like, yeah, let's try this. There's so much, there there's so many things that are only the result of people being really willing to try something different, and so I I'm I'm really enjoying it. Wow, that's it. Sounds really interesting. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the upcoming chamber concert from the Toledo Symphony. It's happening this Sunday at 7 p.m. at the Toledo Club, Music of Beethoven, also Elizabeth Brown. We're going to talk to uh, Elaine Trudell about her when he calls in. And we've been talking about the Juliet Letters, which will be performed by soprano Mickey Emsch with the Toledo Symphony String Quartet, including Merlin Sue, right here with me. Music of Elvis Costello and other collaborators as well. Absolutely, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the the content of these letters because I, you know, you talk about Santa Claus letters, and I'm thinking I would love to like open all those and read them, right? Mm -hmm. All the Juliet letters, I'd love to open and read and see what Mm -hmm. you know people are saying to her. Are are these like different people writing, or is it all one person writing? How how does it work? How is it put together? So every letter is in a different um, character from different um, perspectives, and not necessarily while they're to Juliet. Uh, like the first, I think that we'll do um, is between a wife and uh, suspecting her husband of cheating, right? So there's there's this intimate. Um, Different perspectives, different ages, different levels of um, mental stability. So, <laughs> as one no, would expect, we're not from talking about the people in this room. I, I want to hear about the the Juliet letters. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. <laughs> I, yeah, I wasn't even pointing at you. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in the um, a, a lot of these, though, there is this. Um, I recall seeing disillusionment as a as a main mm-hmm. theme across the board from speaking directly to someone you love often in either sardonic or hopeless spaces but it's so charming and it's so uh beautifully written and comfortably um communicative among us and with the audience it's just it's 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 a really gorgeous collection and i think that it's fun for us too to get to curate from this i mean the full studio album is an hour and Mm. like 30 minutes so Mm. we've we've um you're doing curated, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've curated a lot of these, and it's really 
I, what was left on the cutting room floor? I just want to know. <laughs> is it, it were they things that didn't fit a concert performance? Were they things that just didn't sizzle I, the way you wanted? They didn't, yeah. I do think that like uh, when you're talking about some something that was written for Elvis Costello, who has an extraordinarily distinctive voice mm-hmm. that kind of sits in funny places. <laughs> Uh, that's a fair point because Mickey is singing the lines yeah. that Elvis otherwise would have sung. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I think that some of them we were just like, eh, this sits funny. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like, it's like, and then I think we were, I think the one of the really interesting things about this collection is I, I talked about how, in a weird way, it's like if you open the mailbox, pull mm-hmm. a bunch of letters out, there, there's junk mail in this there's solicitation letters oh i love it there's like you know like so that we there's uh, there is within this what what make you totally is accurate about this general sense of disillusionment and personal vulnerability there's also a lot of humor and then there's some randomness to it and we felt it was important to keep that mix but i think that you know that's not necessarily something that has to be like you know shot through the entire mm-hmm. second half so well, we did cut a couple more randomish sort of and adapting well. something that was initially studio album for stage in a way that one might with any um general art song cycle you know we're we're um packaging them in a dramatic arc for the audience as well yeah. um i loved that we were able to kind of go through the list and i think we had very similar feelings yeah. about which ones were favorites and which ones <laughs> would be great for another time yeah so there could be a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's where the Romeo letters. That's right. Come yeah, the Romeo letters. <laughs> Romeo's revenge. Um, right? That's Romeo's seance. Actually, we uh, are doing that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very fun. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that you take somebody from literature and, and you know a, a book that that many read at an impressionable age, um, and you know Juliet becomes the hero because or the heroine because. Um, she certainly didn't end up with the ending she was hoping for. And then you think about some of these themes of disillusion and, you know, is there, is she a, a, a unique hero for that? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting uh, trope, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better word. But I'm curious, are there Shakespearean references or is, is Shakespeare presence throughout this or is Juliet kind of take on a life of her own, you think? I definitely think that she takes on a life of her own. And yeah. I think a yeah. lot of this... Um, the perspective that I tend to come at um, the the broader Juliet character, kind of to Zach's point, um, it's so nice to take yourself out of age and time and context mm-hmm. to be able to have that intimacy of of first love, you know, and of that vulnerability in any yeah. any form. I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the book and, and the popularity with uh, young readers mm-hmm. and young viewers, too. I remember back in the day watching the uh, Zeffirelli the film, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and all the students came in and watched that. And you think, you know, here are teachers putting out this story to mm-hmm. young minds. I mean, what does that say? Why do you think that is? Why has it got that appeal? The protagonists are high school age. You know, that's mm-hmm. a, yeah. it, it, there's a lot of relationship there because of the, the age proximity. But, you know, I think it's also a gentle way to communicate the sense of tragedy. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's like a it's a gateway drug to tragedy. <laughs> um, but but there there is something unique about it that it, you know it's if you're going to take somebody to the opera for the first time, you know, Bohem would be a really good you know entry mm-hmm. point. This feels like a really good entry point to Shakespeare. Yeah. In in a way, the thing that's most fascinating to me about the Juliet letters is that Mickey isn't Juliet. Mm-hmm. I'm not Juliet. Um, Diana Anderson, Reed Anderson, Bob Clemens, they're not Juliet. Mm-hmm. The audience is Juliet. Mm-hmm. Oh. They need to be, the letters are being addressed to Juliet, but Mickey is singing the letters to the audience. Mm-hmm. So the audience really, if there's, it, and maybe that's something we might want to kind of like mention or something yeah. in a way. Yeah. It's like, like if you, I think if you really want to get the experience and like kind of try to imagine what it would be like to be reading these letters as a fictional character, but a character from who, for whom almost everybody has some sort of opinion. She's an extremely vivid character of her own, but she's also very much the victim of projection yeah. from other people. And Mickey, you're playing kind of different characters as you read yeah. these different letters. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I imagine that's a bit of a challenge. It is, and it's because the music is so um, complimentary to every. I mean, it's so illustrative, it's mm-hmm. so playful that it's simple to slip into. You don't have to um, do too much extra labor for the audience to get mm-hmm. those points across. You know, um, the difference between some of the favorites, like uh, older man who's contemplating um, suicide versus a chain letter offer that makes you think mm-hmm. maybe the devil's involved. We don't yeah. know. Um, it's it's just. Yeah fun and playful it's yeah. it's really stunning now you guys are doing this at the toledo club which was the old venue you've returned to it post pandemic i mean how does the the venue affect your presentation of a piece like this because it's more intimate you know mm-hmm. people can have a drink they can relax can we we talk a little bit about uh, where it's going to be Absolutely. I think this is a really great venue for this sort of location because it's very, it's wonderful to be, as the audience is so critical in this because, you know, um, being able to be kind of partially surrounded by that means, means that the connection is even stronger. And I think that um, there's, there's a few little, like, you know, like I mentioned, the sirens, which is a mm-hmm. which is a good special effect that I don't need to spoil additional other ones. <laughs> but like, like you know, it's it'll be great that like you know we'll be playing these siren sorts of effects, and you'll be able to see what we're doing because mm-hmm. people will be so close to us. Mm-hmm. That's the that's so great to be able to do all of that sort of thing, and it does have. I mean, even though it's certainly not necessarily like a kind of a parisian cabaret sort of (laughs) space it does at least have the same sort of size Mm -hmm. and kind of being wrapped around that Mm -hmm. that 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 does help i think so it's going to i think it will very much lend itself to that experience uh, and just to clarify, you're talking about sirens of the uh, ambulance uh, variety, not as opposed to the Greek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank that's, you. That's so yeah. um, otherwise, I really misinterpreted that effect. Um, <laughs> that's a different piece of literature. <laughs> that's right. Um, but you know, there's something unique about this. Um, you know, we, we were talking about the audience gets to pres- presume the role of Juliet. We have, I, I think, any time we do. Um, songs in a chamber setting it's really special and you get to to act i'm looking at mickey when i say this sorry <laughs> uh you get to act these different personalities you made um 
for some reason, as I was thinking about this concert, I kept going back. Do you guys know the recording that Susan Graham did of Ned Roram songs? No. Yeah. I kept thinking about that CD, which is such a lovely CD. It's probably 20 years old now at this point, but these little miniatures, and some are silly and some are deeply sentimental. And um, I kept going back to to that as I was exploring the Juliet letters, and you get to be so many different people. So I'm just looking at how um, your countenance changes and your posture changes with these different people. I can just imagine how you will sing them. I can't wait. That's going to be really fun. Yeah. Well, there's uh, Elaine Trudell. Let me see if he's online. Hello, Elaine? Are you hello. there? Hello, hello. Yes. You're calling us from Canada, right? Uh, well, this week, yes, I am in Canada. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, that's fortuitous because uh, we're in the middle of the podcast right now. We're going to talk about a Canadian composer. Not you, by the way. This is Elizabeth Raum, who, <laughs> I, as I understand, you you know Elizabeth Raum, yeah? Yes, absolutely. I've had the pleasure of playing her music in the past. And uh, I, I, well, I know her, and it's interesting, from... Uh, well, her, of course, but her husband was a trombone player, and their daughter, who I know very well, Erica Raum, a concert violinist uh, up in Canada. All right. And uh, and, uh, and her husband, uh, Richard, uh, we, we've done a lot of projects together. Uh, I did a lot of research, and I we did a, a movie together, well, a documentary, not a movie, that, that was called, get this, a very humble title, a trombone, the voice of God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think oh, I've seen that God. movie, actually. Oh, Is that on YouTube? It's all over, it's all over <laughs> to by me room. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Alain, you have a couple other people on the phone here, so we're, we're listening into your conversation with, with Brad. So you yeah. got uh, Zach, Hi, Mickey, Hi, and Merwin. Hello, hello. Hey. Oh. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Hello. So the piece yeah. by Elizabeth Raum, incidentally, uh, I have that recording of, of the violin concerto that uh, she wrote for, I don't know if she wrote it for her daughter or if it was just recorded by her daughter, Erica Raum, the, the violinist. Um, but also there's a piece called Sherwood Forest. Do you know that? It's a horn concerto. Yeah, very well. Yeah, I know that. And I, I remember when she was writing that and before she wrote a tremendous tuba concerto. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, the tuba concerto might be one of the the best tuba concertos out there, uh, and that was around the time we did that that um, that I want to say movie that documentary. Sorry, and uh, I, I, I mean she's very prolific, and her piece for trombone and piano called Fantasy has been on the on you know every competition you do. It's one of the the imposed piece that, that that you have to do. It's very beautiful, very lyrical. Her style is very tonal, very lyrical. Uh, I would say if you try to find an equivalent in the States, especially with brass music, it would be like in a different style, but uh, maybe like a Wazen or somebody like that. Yeah, Eric Wazen. So she yeah. wrote uh, Relationships, that's the name of the trio, in 2013. Mm-hmm. There are three different movements. And... and the first one is called Two Against One, so I'm assuming that she's splitting up the <laughs> splitting up the, the instruments that way. The next one is Menage a Trois, so okay. I guess they're coming together. And the last one is Cronies, which basically happens to anybody over 50, right? <laughs> well, I think it, it's, <laughs> it's really nice to be able to position uh, 
Juliet letters sort of concert near Valentine's Day. Um, I think uh, yeah. I think that you know, like, uh, so having this take on relationships, not all of which are in Romeo and Juliet, but to be able to kind of have a have a more wide ranging take on relationships is especially appropriate for this time of year. Yeah. Now Elizabeth Raum is a Canadian composer. Uh, Merwin, did you put this program together, or Elaine, or the Canadian Mafia somehow uh, <laughs> make themselves heard? It's a very polite mafia. I, I, I say it out of it. Free healthcare. <laughs> yeah. So you stayed out of it, Elaine. It just it, it felt like a good fit to kind of be able to bridge the Beethoven and the Costello. Um, yeah. Have you guys uh, performed any of Elizabeth Rahm's music in the past that you that you can remember? I believe it's the first time that she's been on our series, but I, I can't be 100% sure. Well, she has some great uh, orchestral repertoire out there. Yeah, I, uh, we'd have to check. I feel like we've done something. Oh, okay. This is, but, I, but you would probably know more than me. You're looking through the archives of... TSO, but mm-hmm. I assume Elaine, you've you've worked with her obviously, and you've done some yeah, of her music. Yeah, I, I worked with her, but I worked um, also did a piece for trombone and violin, uh, a little duet that that she wrote back in the day. And but I worked a lot with uh, with Dick with, with her husband. We play. We were also at the Scotia Festival together, and talk about a clash a clash of styles. She was there with, uh, with 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 her husband and of course daughter, and we all played together in the orchestra. And the guest music director for that for the festival and the school show festival that year was Pierre Boulez. Oh, oh wow! And I, yeah, I but I mean, she, it was very uh, that you cannot imagine two styles more different, of course. <laughs> so it, it it was it was quite interesting. I mean, it was all about you know Pierre Boulez music when we were there and. Uh, and also with the last concert, uh, we did, uh, what did we do? We did Miraculous Mandarin, La Mer and Le Sac. That was the concert. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a yeah. concert. Well, yeah, and we all got to play together. It was fun. But, you know, so so they're more like colleagues. Sometimes we think of composers just as, as people who uh, send us, you know, the, the pages coming down of a big uh, ivory tower kind of thing but the, she's a very down-to-earth person and she, she she really you can see that she writes for people not just for instruments right so that's the and, the, and i although i don't know this piece of the particular piece i'm sure it's written with three special performers in mind probably some kind of uh, a symposium of a brass uh, like horn tromola trumpet or something like that and maybe some dear colleagues that she has so there, there's always somebody in mind and uh, so it's crafted in a way that uh, each of the people are at their best. Yeah, some of the best music in the repertoire was written for specific performers, so that's wonderful. True, and and, and, and some of them, the people didn't want to play it, right? Like <laughs> Tchaikovsky Concerto, uh, Sibelius Concerto. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny because now they're, they're staples of the repertoire, but it's uh, sometimes, and you know, like somebody would write, a piece, and they they would say like, oh, you know, they put the they, they pull their their heart and their their soul on the piece, and then the the person that's not Elizabeth's case because she she writes something that's actually it's very very playable everything she writes, but uh, yeah, well the tuba piece is pretty challenging, but uh, the you know the interpreter gets it and said no way I'm playing that imagine that must be like 
Uh, that must be so hard for the composer when they they really want to do it. Sibelius is another story. It was kind. Of, some people say it was his revenge for for not becoming a concert violinist. But I we take that with a great grain, grain of salt. Right. But I would say that Elizabeth writes more in the um, the spirit of collaboration, like Haydn and Mozart a little bit more. Well, we can hear her efforts firsthand on uh, Sunday. This is January 29th, 7 p.m. at the Toledo Club, one of the chamber concerts from the Toledo Symphony Orchestra. Now, we've talked about the Elvis Costello piece, the Juliet Letters. We've been talking about Elizabeth Raum and her relationships, trio for brass. But there's also the Beethoven String Quartet Number no. 1. Mm-hmm. Now, Elaine, do you want to stick around and talk about Beethoven, or do you have to, to head out? Well, unfortunately, I have to run today, but I wanted to make sure that I, I had a little chat with you guys and tell hello to everybody and talk about my, my colleague, uh, Elizabeth. That's wonderful. Well, thanks so much for calling in. We'll, we'll see you when you get back to Toledo. Oh, you bet. Take care, Elaine. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay, now that Elaine is gone, if you have anything to say, say it now. But uh, let's talk about Beethoven. Sure. That, that's sort of, you know, you talk about pages coming from an ivory tower. These are very early pages. I mean, his opus one of string quartets. I don't know how old he was when he wrote this, but it had to have been fairly early in his career. It's relatively early, but I mean, if you were if you're thinking of the standards of Schubert or Mozart, that's or Mendelssohn, yeah, or Mendelssohn, yeah. <laughs> you know, like this, certainly yeah. um, Beethoven at this point, it's it's his first string quartet, but he wrote really all the first through the sixth quartets are all written kind of at the same time, mm. and. Uh, it is definitely published as the first one, right? But and it was one of the earlier ones that he wrote. But it might not have been the first one he actually completed. Um, yeah. But it's a it's an amazing way to start a cycle, and it has that sort of a lot of times with Beethoven, you think of these really concise motives that are you know used as building blocks, and this is very Beethovenian in that sense. Like you you hear this motive that starts that quartet and it immediately you can just you you can watch him like build this you know edifice out of it it's yeah. really cool it's interesting and then you know ideas that he would return to later in his composing exactly. career yeah. you see that in different composers like uh, beethoven is sort of a, a, a an example unto himself because you hear these things struggling to come to the fore and they eventually mm-hmm. are realized Whereas you go back and listen to Mozart's first symphony and you hear Mozart, you know, mm-hmm. it's like sprung from the head of Zeus, you know, they, they're able to write um, with the DNA that they're using later in life. But what, what is the connection with this concert? How does Beethoven fit in with this chamber program? Well, it's, it's really interesting because uh, Beethoven was very much influenced in these early quartets by um, his teacher, Haydn. Um, It was a kind of a tumultuous teacher-student relationship, but Haydn wrote an immense number of quartets and extraordinarily um, really kind of, you know, gave the blueprint, the template for the form. And most of Beethoven's um, first six quartets really follow those forms. But there's something really interesting about the second movement of this quartet. Mm. It's much more operatic than the typical Haydn quartet slow movement. It and it has 
a really strong sense of drama and a strong sense of theater. And Beethoven inscribed on the sketches of that second movement that it was at Juliet's tomb. Mm. So you have this sense of, you know, you know, the like there there's a restlessness, an anxiety that speaks to, you know, like all of the incredibly dramatic things that happen in those in those final scenes of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And, you know, you like it's not just this, you know, gentle lament. You hear, you know, like sudden rises and falls and like you know really loud things and then like breathless moments of silence and then like this shriek and then it's, it's, it's like it's it's a very very shriek from the violin i take it yes yes that is my job <laughs> it is an intentional moment um, yeah. but it's like um it is an incredible movement um but it, one thing that's it's fascinating because it's surrounded by these more conventional Haydn-esque um, um, movements, and it kind of really stands out as this extraordinary moment, even among Beethoven's quartets. Um, I don't know if you have an answer for this, Merwin, but um, I, 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 for some reason, I always think of the symphonies as kind of early middle late yep. just like we have the quartets early middle late yep. yeah. um and you know the the third symphony of course had a funeral march um you know it, what do you it, what is the analog for this slow movement the the juliet's tomb because yeah, i agree every with everything that merwin said because i typically do but um the uh the haydn influences hmm. are really pretty notable and yeah. there's there's kind of a darkness i think about this music that you know, Beethoven went on to really explore and, and, and perfect, but but he wasn't writing this as a teenager. Like he was, yeah. a, he was a very sturdy composer. Um, so so where would an analog be, either by time or theme or, or I mood? I can't think of a symphonic one, but I do think the Appassionata Sonata. S- sonata, okay. Appassionata for that slow mm-hmm. movement. It's like if you think about, if if you imagine Beethoven's first symphony, which you know it's. Very Haydn-esque, yeah. but you ima- but the, imagine the slow movement was from like a passionata sonata. Mm-hmm. That's much, you know that that you get the same sense of. I don't think it's jarring exactly, but it is. You know, I think that sometimes when we think of youthfulness, mm-hmm. there's you know there's a, we we underestimate the turmoil that can be in youthfulness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unless you're trying to get your five year old to school as I did this morning. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, parents of young kids are, yeah, yeah, ruefully acknowledging that. But I think that, like, with the the lightness and the felicity and the just the you know, charm of most of these movements, mm-hmm. um, we get that turmoil. And I think a passionata sonata might be the best one I can mm-hmm. think of yeah. for early Beethoven. Well, as a student of Haydn, I mean, Haydn is like the the father of the string quartet. I Absolutely. think he had a huge influence on on many composers, Beethoven included, in the form and the structure. Mm-hmm. But Haydn brought a lot of humor mm-hmm. and a lot of lightness and, and fun and joy to his string quartets. And I think some of that rubbed off on the early Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And then it yeah. kind of was all downhill from there as far <laughs> as like, you know, heading into the emotional landscape that was now yeah. visited by composers yeah. like Haydn and Mozart or may have been visited in a, a different way, it in is a funny. much more 18th century way. Um, yeah. 
um, Beethoven's first quartet and his last quartet are both F major quartets. Um, mm. His last quartet is actually my absolute favorite piece yeah. of music in the world. And it does come full circle. Um, you're right in the sense that Beethoven kind of delves and kind of d- like into these extraordinary emotional depths and by, and the, the C sharp minor quartet mm-hmm. is one of the mm-hmm. most profound and moving and just jarring compositions. But yeah. then that final quartet, the F major, it's like he reconciles all of it, and mm-hmm. there, and the, the humor does come back at the very end. Uh-huh. The, the, the last full piece he completed, I feel like, is just the perfect. You know, you know, I, I like almost everything that you said. I totally agree with, but just for that one. Which parts piece, do you not agree with? Well, that one piece, <laughs> it's no longer that just kind of descending the, the humor does come back oh, yeah. there is that Haydn-esque element yeah. just at the very end mm-hmm. which makes me love that last quartet more than any other well the idea of the string quartet number one by mm-hmm. Beethoven put me in mind of a quiz subject so <laughs> I'm, I'm calling this the opus one quiz here's the quiz that you were missing Zach um, <laughs> I wouldn't say I was missing it <laughs> hey you're on a streak so what <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. do I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say the name of a piece and you tell me who the composer was, and I'll give you three choices of who the composer was. Are they okay. all early compositions, all early opus numbers? Are they yeah, all the, just it's called all opus one? the first published work by this composer. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> Great. There's a little music. This is obviously not fair. Mozart's first. Yeah. <laughs> it's obviously not fair. Yes, this is all one right. of the piano sonatas. Mm-hmm. Do you want this to be <clears throat> we write down all our answers? Quiz. Yeah, and then we'll come oh, okay. back. Okay. Right. First one is a piano trio. So you mean trio. I have a chance? Yes, you yeah, do. Right. Piano trio number one in E flat major, opus one, number one. Was it Wolfgang Mozart? Was it Joseph Haydn? Or was it Ludwig van Beethoven? Piano trio number one. Second question. Piano quartet number one in C minor, opus one. This composer was 13 when they wrote it. Was it Felix Mendelssohn? Was it Carl Maria von Weber? Or was it Johannes Brahms? Piano Trio in D Major, Opus 1. Was it Wolfgang Mozart? Was it Wolfgang Korngold? Or was it Wolfgang Riem? R-I-H-M. What was the uh, signature? The signature? It was Opus 1? Opus 1. Opus 1. What was the key? D major. You're not looking at your iPad, are you? No, okay, no. good. Uh, das Klagende Lied, or the Song of Lamentation, Opus 1. Was it Gustav Mahler? Was it Hugo Wolf? Or was it Richard Strauss? Number 5. String Quartet Number 1 and B flat major, Opus 1, Number 1. It also has a subtitle, which I won't tell you yet because that'll give it away. Was it Wolfgang Mozart? Was it Josef Haydn? Or was it Luigi Boccherini? Sinfonietta, Opus 1. Was it Leos Janáček? Was it Henrik Goritsky? Or was it Benjamin Britten? And for extra credit, which one of these was Wolfgang Mozart's Opus Number <laughs> 1? Is it the Minuet in G Major? The Minuet in F Major? <laughs> <laughs> or the Allegro in B flat. Now these are basically Opus One, Two, and Three. You have to figure out which goes where. He was only five years old. 
only five years old when he wrote this. I don't know if he was on his way to school or not. <laughs> if his uh, father, Leopold, had to put him in the car and get him to kindergarten, I don't know. It's possible. Anyway, let's go back. Wow, what a tough quiz. That was, yeah. This is just mean. Yep, I'm having comps flashbacks. I know, yeah. <laughs> it's like you don't need to remember the composer, you need to figure out like the appropriate opus. This, yeah. Yeah. Number. this, was, this, this is music school. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't hear any Kirchel numbers, but I needed that. Yeah. There, there was this sort of like weird pinching feeling in my stomach that mm. I remember mm. in particular exams. This was yeah. a very... That's a very good point, though, yeah. that yeah. they were all opus numbers. Yeah, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. We can't identify it without the right cataloging. Right. Yeah, so we presume that none of these is Mozart except for the end. I said yeah. all Mozart all the time. All Mozart all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it says on your business card. It, it, yeah. I love <laughs> well, Zach figured it out. I should have said yeah. the extra credit question. But also question. that means no Schubert and... Yeah. No. Afterwards, yeah. No, Schubert okay. did have opus numbers. Number yeah, one. The, the, the Ds, but he, he also did publish enough of, like, his... Erwin, help us out. His string quartet, <laughs> D804, is opus 29. Well, we don't have any Schubert on here we as options, so okay. never mind. I, I, can t- <laughs> I can tell who the winner is going to be of the quiz. Okay, question number one. <laughs> Not me, right? Uh, piano trio number one. Uh, the, these piano trios mm-hmm. and quartets, what have you, were really popular with, with young composers. Was that Mozart, Haydn, or Beethoven, number one? I said Beethoven. And would you say Merwin? I said Beethoven, but I think I'm wrong. Yeah. It's Beethoven. Okay. What'd you say, Mickey? I okay. said Beethoven. Unanimous. Mozart all the time, right? Yeah. Piano quartet number one. Was it Felix Mendelssohn? Was it Carl Maria von Weber or Johannes Brahms? What'd you say, Zach? Weber. Weber? Mm. Oh, what'd you say? I went Mendelssohn. Yeah, Mendelssohn. He was 13 years old when he wrote his first published piece. Piano trio and, and you know and before that he wrote all those string symphonies yeah. which mm-hmm. were later discovered in, I think in the 20th century sometime yeah, yeah. We, we, and they're remarkable and he was yeah. quite young. Yeah. Moving on, piano trio in D major was it Wolfgang Mozart, Wolfgang Korngold, or Wolfgang Riem? A, B, or C? What do you I say, Maria? Korngold for this. Korngold. Anybody, so, anybody not choose Korngold? I chose Riem. No, I chose Korngold. Great. Sure about that? (laughs) It was Wolfgang Korngold. At age 12, he wrote his piano trio in D major. I can't even remember age 12. Okay. Das Klagende Lied, The Song of Lamentation. Was that Gustav Mahler? Was that Hugo Wolf or was it Richard Strauss? Do I ring the bell again? Yes or no? Yes. That is correct. It was Gustav Mahler. Everybody get that? I did not. I did not. Seriously? Okay. <laughs> the Mahler bell. It doesn't work when the I Mahler say the Mahler bell. The Mahler bell is misleading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's Das Leading. I just put Mozart. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> das Leading. Okay. String quartet number one in B flat major. Opus one, number one. Also called La Chasse or The Hunt. Was that by Mozart, Haydn, or Boccherini? What do you say, Merwin? I got it wrong. I said Baccarini. <laughs> I didn't until you told me it was called The Hunt. Yeah. 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 What do you, what do you I think? I said Baccarini, but that's wrong. I'm going to say Did you, you say I'm Baccarini switching too? to Haydn. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. switching. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Joseph Haydn's first yeah. string quartet was La Chasse. Okay. Sinfonietta. 
Opus uh, One? Was that Leo Janáček, Henrik Gorsky, or Benjamin Britten? Britten, I think. Britten. Britten. Mm-hmm. Everybody on on the Britain page, Yay. the same yeah. page Choo-choo. there. Yay. Okay. Janáček wrote a famous Sinfonietta, yeah, but, but it that wasn't was Opus One. Much later. Benjamin Britten was 18 when he wrote his Sinfonietta. And for your extra credit, the first piece to be written and published by Wolfgang Mozart was it Minuet in G Major, Minuet in F Major, or Allegro in B flat? A, B, or C? I went to the Minuet in G. I, I want to do F major. I want to say F. Yeah. Okay, the. Because that's the one I G's can have it. The G's have Seriously. it. Seriously. The Fs don't have it. That, that was opus number two. What was So Minuet in G was his first? Minuet in G major was the first of two works published under his opus oh. one. Oh. Little piano I, works. Yeah, you can I find would, them online. Sure, I know them, but I, 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 would have, I would have put a lot into the center of the table on that one. In fact, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a winner for that? I, I, wasn't I have keeping no idea. Track. I feel like Mozart or Mozart. Mozart, <laughs> Mozart, Mozart was the winner. I think Alain won this one, right? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> Alain, definitely. But usually we let our guests win, so we're going to say, Mickey, you won the Thank quiz. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Yeah. Well Wonderful. done. Well, it was that Bocarini that got you through. Yay. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. There it is. You even got the right key, the right inflection going. You have See, I, that, I, I literally have nothing else to do. You have it like <laughs> in your mind's ear, so to speak. I think my voice is one of those. So it's just, you know, it's musical memory. So the string quartet number one by Ludwig van Beethoven is on the program this Sunday at 7 p.m. at the Toledo Club. We'll also hear Elizabeth Raum's Relationships, a brass trio. And finally, string quartet with voice, selections from the Juliet Letters of Elvis Costello, as sung by our guest Mickey Amsch. We look forward to that. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barber Kern Foundation. You can download episodes as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts. Don't forget to check out all the upcoming events at the Symphony by visiting their website at ToledoSymphony.com and their various social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find the TSO streaming platform online at stream.artstoledo.com. You can reach the box office by phone. That is 419-246-8000. My thanks to Zach Vasser and Marwin Sue, also to Elaine Trudell, who called in earlier, and of course to our very special guest, Mickey Amsch. I'm Brad Cresswell. This has been Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91. <laughs>